Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. In an era when image is everything, uh, what's a picture worth? And I'm going to circle back around to this in just a second. But if you haven't seen it yet, um, you need to see an image of what is being called the Field of Flags. So the Washington Mall is closed. It's closed to uh, spectators. It's closed to foot traffic. Um, in anticipation of the inauguration tomorrow. And so the inaugural committee um, probably thought to themselves, wow, we don't want a big empty green space. Uh, We want something visual. We want it to be full. We want it to be meaningful and fabulous. You absolutely must see the image of the field of flags. It was illuminated last night. There are I don't know, some half a million flags out there. I don't know. It's, it's some crazy number. I'm, I'm probably wrong. I'm making up a number. I don't have it in front of me in terms of the, uh, uh, the number of flags. I know that there are 56 pillars of light, and those 56 pillars of light are um, to represent all of the people from each one of the American states and territories who will not be able to attend the uh, the inauguration. And when you see these pillars of light piercing the darkness, I want you to Remember the light that shines in the darkness and the fact that the darkness will not overcome it. When you see this field of flags and you recognize that no matter where you live in the United States of America or one of its territories, you are represented there. Your state flag is present. Your territory flag is present. The American flag is represented, um, well, hundreds of thousands of times in this sea of flags. So field of flags. I want you to see the image. So back to my initial question. What's a picture worth? Uh, A picture is said to be worth a thousand words. Well, if a picture is worth a thousand words, what if I told you that God put that word count in terms of his image bearers? His communication to his image bearers? God set that word count at 783,137. That's how many words are in the Bible. God saw fit to speak nearly a million words that those of us who bear his image might be able to see him, might be able to see ourselves, might be able to see reality for what it is and see the future hope that is set before us in Christ Jesus. Let's have some perspective on the day in which we live, the days in which we live, and let's gain that perspective from the one whose image we bear. What's a picture worth? A thousand words. What's an image worth? Well, if you're an image bearer of the living God, which you are, from God's vantage point, you're worth 783,137 words. And you're worth the word of God, taking on human flesh to dwell among us, full of grace and truth. When you see the lights again around the perimeter of the field of flags, I want you to 
become a person who lets your light so shine before others that when the world sees your good works, they would glorify God who is in heaven. Jeff Barrows is up next from the Christian Medical and Dental Association. We're going to cover some healthcare headlines today. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Dr. Jeff Barrows, he is uh, he serves with the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Jeff, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. Good to be with you this uh, early here in 2021. Amen. Amen. So January uh, is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month. I know you have some expertise in this area. Maybe just uh, share your heart on this topic and then talk with us about uh, the content that is available at cmda.org for those who want to become not only uh, well-informed, but well-equipped. Yeah, so happy to do that because you're right. I've been, I have worked in the human trafficking realm to fight it for the, about the last 15 years. And, you know, there are over 40 million people worldwide that are entrapped in some form of human trafficking, or other people will refer to it as modern-day slavery. And that means that there's several hundred thousand people here in the United States. And as a healthcare professional myself, I really have a heart to train healthcare professionals to recognize and assist these victims because healthcare is one of the very few sectors within our society that regularly encounters victims of human trafficking while they're still being trafficked. And so studies have shown that about half of victims that come from another country uh, will go into healthcare with their trafficker, uh, with help looking for help with significant health problems. So another study has found that even U.S. citizens who are entrapped in trafficking, about 88% of them will regularly use the healthcare system during their time of trafficking. So that's critical because it means that if we're going to find and help these victims of modern-day slavery. We have to start with the healthcare system. So I have a passion to get every hospital and every major clinic within the United States to develop a response protocol for human trafficking. That really takes them through the steps of what they need to do. It increases the safety of a patient, also increases the safety of, of the staff of the hospital and clinic. It provides the right type of interviewer and helps them uh, to spend time with the patient. It trains the people on trauma-informed care because uh, so many, almost all of these victims are highly traumatized. Helps that institution create a, a safe space for the patient if they want to leave that trafficking scenario. So it really is critical for them to be prepared in advance. And so I was fortunate to be involved in the preparation of a toolkit. I worked in concert with Heal Trafficking. And that toolkit can be uh, downloaded online at healtrafficking.org. And uh, then after that protocol is in place, then I recommend that the hospital staff, the clinic staff, be trained on the indicators of human trafficking. And there are three general 
categories of indicators. There are indicators of being controlled by another person. There are these very strange red flags that kind of appear with these people. And then there are, thirdly, physical indicators that indicate that something is going on, that they're being traumatized. And I'm happy to go into more detail on those if you would like. But I would say, again, as you briefly mentioned, that there is a whole series of uh, educational modules that have been approved for continuing medical education uh, for healthcare professionals, and they can go to cmda.org to find those. All right, so again, um, resources available at cmda.org. You're looking for um, a PDF that's just entitled Human Trafficking. Uh, you are also going to be directed to Heal Trafficking. Dot O-R-G. Trafficking, let's just be reminded, is spelled T-R-A-F-F-I-C-K-I-N-G. When you're trafficking a person, that's the uh, that's the spelling of that. It's not like, you know, traffic in the road. You're trafficking in, um, in, in, in people. So HealTrafficking.org, and there you're looking for the protocol toolkit. Um, yeah, Jeff, go ahead and, and brief us in on what are the red flags. And I think that when when we have this conversation we're talking about things that each of us and all of us should be alert uh, for and to in the in the world in which we live. Exactly. And, and one of the key ones, especially this time of the year, if someone comes in with inappropriate clothing, and that's I'm talking about scanty clothing here in the middle of January, that's just very strange. Why would anybody be dressed that way? Well, maybe they're in some form of sexual exploitation. One of the common things I recommend is that assuming you have somebody who is neurologically normal, but they don't know what city they're in. So they may ask a question like, by the way, what city is this? Well, that's a very strange question. And the reason these victims don't know the answer to that is they get frequently moved by their trafficker through several different cities. And after months of being moved around, they stop keeping track. And so if they come into healthcare, they may just ask, by the way, what city is this? And, and again, that's very unusual. They're unable to give an address because they don't really have an address. They're also told to lie about their age, especially if they're under age 18. And that's very unusual for us in healthcare. We're, we're not used to that. And so that should, should perk up the interest of the healthcare professional. If they happen to be from another country, they're not going to have their normal documents. They're not going to be in control of a driver's license or a passport. It'll be the other person or they may not have it with them. So those are some of the weird things that just kind of make you think, huh, something unusual is going on. I'm also suspecting that um, any effort by uh, by another individual to um, escort or continue to be present when a person should be in a private setting with a healthcare provider is another huge indicator. Yes, that's that's under the the indicators of control because by definition all victims of human trafficking are being controlled by another individual. So they will tend to be an overpowering presence especially in the exam room. They may even answer questions for the patient which is very unusual or even correct the patient. So Healthcare professionals need to be watching for these things and also watching for the body language of the patient. Uh, for instance, if that other controlling person is in there, the patient won't be able to say anything out of fear. So 
I think we need to learn as healthcare professionals, what, what is the body language that the patient is giving off? Are they showing signs of fear or anxiety, perhaps even deference or submission, which is not something we think about a lot. So these are things to be aware of. It could also be a possibility they're dealing with domestic violence, which is going to present very similarly. All right, we're talking with Dr. Jeff Barrows from the Christian Medical and Dental Association, and we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Jeff Barrows um, from cmda.org. That's where you're going to go to uh, get the resources that we're talking about today. Um, Jeff, let's um, let's jump forward. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, the flu vaccine. Is it possible that a universal flu vaccine is on the horizon? Well, there is some hope, Carmen. And if your listeners are anything like me, they they don't want to get a, an annual flu shot, and it gets a little <laughs> frustrating. They're also very uncomfortable and inconvenient. Uh, and they may even wonder why it is we have to get a flu shot every single year. And the reason for that is that flu stands for the influenza virus. And there are four major types of influenza virus, A, B, C, and D. And of course, we focus mainly on type A and B. But unfortunately, both of those types have lots of different subtypes. So every year, there's a a new strain that is now dominant. And that's why right now we have to get an annual flu shot. But there's been some research that is looking at a particular type of immune cell that's found in the lung tissue. And that cell is called a resident helper T cell. And it lives in our lung tissue after we've had a viral infection. And what has been recently found with this cell is that it tends to respond to new types of influenza infections if it's been exposed to one type. So it doesn't have to be updated every year. And it equips the cells in our lungs to develop antibodies, and it also releases chemicals that help strengthen our immune response to viruses. So lots of good things that come out of this cell. Here's the problem. The number of those cells in our lungs is very, very small, and it's been limited to date. So what researchers are looking to do is to investigate ways to increase the number of those cells and better mobilize them so that they can become engaged in our immune response. So they're looking at some particular types of vaccines that focus on that particular cell or maybe even medications that may activate that cell. So the hope is, is that if researchers can find ways to augment that particular resident helper T cell and get that to become more common within the lung tissue, we might be able to spread out our flu vaccines instead of every year, maybe every five to seven years. All right. Let's gonna encourage my resident helper T cells today. There you go. I like that. I like having a name for it. That's, um, I don't know, it's empowering. Okay. Um, let's talk about youth vaping. Uh, I will say that this is one of One of the conversations that you and I have had in the past that we have um, we have highlighted as a real concern and yet completely dropped off the radar uh, in the midst of covid. So uh, what's going on with you youth vaping and um, how is it becoming a gateway to adult smoking? 
Well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because when vaping came out, of course, the companies talked about the fact that this was a way to reduce the number of our teenagers and young people to get addicted to nicotine and cigarette smoke. And so initially, years ago, they were promoted as relatively harmless. And again, it would reduce subsequent cigarette smoking. And, uh, you know, a lot of the news now has talked about a whole range of vaping illnesses. There have been people who have died. There have been 57 deaths in 27 states around the country. And fortunately, they have, I think, identified the chemical within some of those vaping compounds that is the problem. And so deaths have diminished. But a recent study in the Journal of Pediatrics that looked specifically at the question, do teenagers who vape, are they less likely to smoke cigarettes as an adult, as was originally promised? And the unfortunate news is that, unfortunately, three times the, the number of, of, of teenagers who vape then go on to smoke cigarettes. So instead of reducing their risk, it increases it by three times. So this is not what we want to hear. And so we really want to be getting the word out that we don't want kids and young people to start vaping at all because it does not reduce the risk of sub subsequent cigarette smoking. Yeah, I, I just, I, I'm making note of that. So um, instead of reducing the risk, teen vapors are three times as likely to become adult smokers. That, that yeah. If you needed one little statistic today to empower you in conversations with your kids, um, uh, you know, not only about just how harmful vaping is, um, which we have talked about before, uh, it is a gateway to adult smoking. All right. We, we probably have time to talk about one more thing. Which one more thing do you want to talk about today? Let's talk about the long-term COVID illness, because very little is, is talked about with that. It's ignored in a lot of discussions, and a lot of times the, the COVID uh, debate is framed as either you get sick a little bit or you die, and of course, most people think, well, I'm not going to get sick, but they aren't talking a lot about the long-term illnesses. And so a recent study was done in the UK that, that studied uh, about 150 patients who in last spring had COVID and then they followed up with them in about September or October, months after they'd had the infection. And they found about two thirds of them were still struggling with symptoms from COVID. Things like fatigue is the number one. Another common one is called brain fog, which is problems with memory, inability to focus or think clearly. They're having shortness of breath. There's also been documented damage to the heart, damage to the kidneys, and abnormal lung function after a relatively asymptomatic or low-symptom COVID infection. So I think it's important for your listeners to know that it's not just a matter of whether you have a mild infection or you die. Significant numbers of people are struggling with ongoing symptoms long after the COVID infection has left them. So that just gets to the importance of people getting vaccinated, using a mask, maintaining physical distancing from others, and avoiding unnecessary public events. All right, we're going to continue to be uh, to be vigilant, and um, you know, I'm going to add uh, additionally to pray God's protection over each of us and all of us, um, yeah. and and recognize that all of the preventative measures that we have been abiding by for now more than a year are still required of us. Um, and so I just want to encourage people to continue to be vigilant. We are not out of the woods yet, but there is hope on the horizon. 
as always. So, Dr. Jeff uh, Barrows, thank you so much. I want to encourage people to visit the Christian Medical and Dental Association at cmda.org. Thanks, Carmen. All right, for Donald Trump, today is what is known as a penultimate day. It's a 24-hour countdown. Uh, It would be the day in which, if it were you or me, we would be clearing out our desk. Tens of millions of Americans have actually had this experience just in the last year, um, having lost their jobs, at least temporarily. Donald Trump joins them, albeit in a very different way. he, he has lost the highest profile job maybe in the world. He's likely experiencing a range of emotions. But those emotions are actually no different than every other person who has experienced an unexpected and unwelcome loss of a job. So next up, I'm going to talk with Dale Kreinkamp. He is the author of How Long, O Lord? It is a conversation and devotions for those who are unemployed and those who love them. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is Max Licato. Jesus and Jairus are interrupted by emissaries from his house. In the Gospel of Mark, we read, Your daughter is dead, they said. There is no need to bother the teacher anymore. But Jesus paid no attention to what they said. I love that line. It describes the critical principle for seeing the unseen. Ignore what people say. Close your ears and, if you must, walk away. Ignore the ones who say it's too late to begin again. Turn a deaf ear toward those who say you aren't smart enough, fast enough, tall enough, or big enough. Faith sometimes begins by stuffing your ears with cotton. Jesus turns immediately to Jairus and pleads, Don't be afraid, just believe. And Jesus compels Jairus to see the unseen. When Jesus says, just believe, he is imploring, don't be afraid, just trust. Is he saying the same words to you? This is Max Locato. Ryan Camp is a former human resources executive. He's the founder of Thriving Through Transitions, and he knows firsthand what tens of millions of Americans have experienced just in this past year, which is the loss of a job. He's been through that process twice, once after working 25 years for the same organization and once after working 10 years. Uh, He was fully committed to those places of work, sacrificing in the ways in which we all do to do our jobs well. His unemployment in both uh, in both times was unexpected. It impacted him financially and emotionally. And he has now um, developed a resource for those who are unemployed and those who love them. The book is How Long, O Lord? How Long? Dale Kreinkamp, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Carmen, thank you. It's good to be with you today. Well, it's um, it's wonderful to have you here with us today. Talk a little bit about what is, uh, as of today, 10.7 million people across the country who are unemployed? Um, what, what are they experiencing? In your, in your experience, what are those 10.7 million people experiencing today? Well, they're having a really tough time. And, Carmen, there's actually probably more than the 10.7 because uh, that doesn't count the independent contractors. So there's probably mm-hmm. closer to 20 million. And those people are frustrated. 
They are feeling a little bit lonely. They have a lot of anxiety because they don't know when this journey for them is going to end. And for many of them, they're trying to figure out, do I shift gears and go in a different direction? Do I hold out and wait? And it's a really tough time. We're in the waiting, and none of us are very good at waiting and uh, looking for a new job. I know um, so many people who have made what I'll describe as unwelcome job transitions in the last year or so, um, and several who are in the midst of uh, of what you chose to call a sabbatical at the time. So, talk a little bit about the language that we use, the choice of um, of the choice of words. Talk about your use of the word sabbatical when you were explaining your uh, seasons of unemployment. I used the word sabbatical because I didn't like the word transition. I had met so many people who said they were in transition, which to me just screamed unemployed. I didn't like that. I'd always been employed throughout my life, and I felt uncomfortable with that. And I knew people who had been on sabbaticals. I have good friends who are pastors, and a sabbatical or an education is a kind of a rest and recharge the battery period. And I tried to take the time and say, this is an opportunity to rest and recharge the batteries and rethink about where I go and what I do. In fact, Carmen, that's one of the most important things for people to do is take time before they just immediately go out and try and find the next job. You stop and and take a look at where they are, what they've been doing. Is it using their gifts? Is it using their skills? Is what they were doing giving them joy or is it just bringing in income? And maybe it's time for a shift. So sometimes while we may not want this job change, this becomes a blessing for us because we have a chance to make a shift. And we'll never get there if we immediately say, gee, I lost this job, and I just want to replace it with a new job doing the same thing without ever pausing. So it's a good time to pause. It's a good time to get some rest and maybe some time with a family that we haven't had before. But at the same time, keep trying to move forward. All right. If putting your hands on uh, on Dale's book is something that right now you think would be a blessing and benefit to you, if you are unemployed, uh, today's the day we want you to text the word book to 877-933-2484. We do have copies of How Long, O Lord, How Long, Devotions for the Unemployed and Those Who Love Them uh, to give away today. Um, let's turn, uh, Dale, to the uh, to the change curve People listening uh, who've been listeners for a long time know I I have a particular passion for appendices in books. I like the stuff that authors choose to put at the end of the book um, as resources for the rest of us. And uh, and your first appendix is the change curve, which actually is a blessing and benefit throughout the book in terms of understanding uh, the process that a person is in, not only in this kind of, um, of experience, but in other kinds as well. Talk with us about the change curve, because I think that's going to help us uh, talk about the varieties of devotions that are in the book. The change curve really is adapted from Dr. Keebler-Ross's work that she did for people who are ill with a terminal illness. And it goes through the different stages that we go through when we have this unexpected, unwanted change in life. And we go through a process where first, when we hear the word that we don't have a new, our job is gone, we go through shock um, because most people are surprised by that. Um, We start dealing with the fears because we're looking for certainty and there is no certainty at that time. Anger, uh, we might want to blame others. You know, why did I lose my job? It's not my fault. It's somebody else's. 
and we go through these series of emotions until we kind of get to the bottom of the pit and we, we kind of give it up at that point in time and accept, I can't change what just happened to me. I've got to move forward. And that's an important part for everybody in the job search journey is when they accept that it's happened, accept that they can't change what happened to them and are ready to begin to move forward. Because until you get to that place, uh, if you imagine trying to run while your head is turned looking backward, it doesn't work really well. You can't move very fast. When you finally accept it, it's better to move forward. And once you accept it, you can kind of embrace it as an opportunity for you and continue looking forward to see what doors is God going to open for me. I am talking with Dale Kreinkamp. We're talking about his book, How Long, O oh Lord, How Long. We're also talking about his own personal experience um, of seasons of unemployment and uh, and how his experience and the things that he learned about God, about himself, um, Scripture that is applicable, um, grew into this really fantastic resource that um, challenges those who are unemployed and those who love them to, I think, deepen uh, deepen the experience by recognizing uh, that the the job search journey is um, is a journey that you can take by faith and in faith. So if you're interested uh, in entering the drawing for one of the complimentary copies we have available in studio today, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Dale and I will be right back. All right, I'm talking with Dale Kreinkamp. He's an HR uh, executive. He has been through what I'll call job transitions. Um, he doesn't like that word, but I don't have a better one right now. And um, and his book is fantastic. And you know me, I really like appendices. So the sample communications and the interview prep in the back of the book are fantastic and uh, a don't miss part of how long, oh Lord, how long, devotions for the unemployed and those who love them. Um, if this is the book you've been waiting for us to talk about and offer, the number is 877-933-2484. You text the word book uh, to that number to enter the drawing for the copies we have available. Um, Dale, I want to talk about um, what you learned about God. I also want to talk about the role of your wife and your kids and your good friends because those are the people that we we are and we want to be in the lives of those we love who are unemployed. So talk um, talk a little bit of what you learned about God um, through and in all of this, and then talk about the role of the people closest to you. Well, I realize God never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He's there. And in, in the darkest times, um, I turn to him. It's when we realize when you're unemployed, at some point you realize I don't control anything. And that's probably, and, and I've known God all my life. I've been blessed in that way. And yet I still struggled with doubt and angst. And it's when we finally turn it over to him that then he says, okay, let's go and starts to move us forward. That's one of the reasons I wanted scripture in every uh, devotion, because I want to draw people back to God in this process. Uh, when you ask about uh, my spouse and my family, that, that's huge for people. That's their support team, their network. And so when I wrote the book, the subtitle's there because I wanted to give people a glimpse of what somebody was going through who was unemployed. I hear from people all the time that have read the book, you really get it. You understand, I thought I was crazy, that I'm experiencing these things. I didn't think that was right, and yet 
I'm reading it so I know others have gone through it. So that was comforting to them. And for spouses, I've had them say, now I have a better understanding what my spouse is going through. For me, my spouse was my greatest cheerleader. There's nothing quite like when your spouse says, I'm proud of you, keep going, keep faithful. There's something there for you to make it happen. My children were older when I went through, so they were high school, college age the first time and uh, older adults married the second time, but a great source of confidence and faith. Um, Also, when they were younger in high school and college, they still teased dad about being the guy who needed a car. Uh, When we only had four cars and five people, you know, it was like, why does the unemployed guy need a car? Um, And then they laughed. So they can be a source of humor to keep you humble as you go through it. One thing I will say that if you have younger children, make sure you do talk about this with your children, because if you don't, they're going to imagine the worst. Um, Kids tend to go to the worst part. I had a friend of mine who was unemployed And as she was getting a job, the child said, I'm so thankful because I thought we were going to lose the house. And she said we were nowhere near losing the house, but but her son, because she hadn't talked much about it, kind of went that direction. So they're extremely important. And so if you have a friend who's unemployed right now, stay connected with them. This is a time when they really need you. They need you to be proactive in reaching out. How can I help you? and be the encourager for them, because that's so very important. They don't control the results. They just control their own efforts. And when you can stay with them and connect and encourage, that's really important. Yeah, I think that connection and encouragement, you know, are things I'm I'm writing down as well. Um, Are there things um, not to say, uh, not to ask? You know, for people who are unemployed, it's it's a sensitive subject when people keep saying how's the job search um, because you don't have anything and you're just tired of answering that question. Um, so instead of saying how's the job search going, maybe just ask them the question, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? And the other one is just to say, how can I help you? What are you doing and how can I help you to get them talking about that? Now, people are still going to say, how's the search going? Because they care. They really do. And the person who's unemployed just needs to kind of accept that that's just a sign of love. You may have said what's going on, and maybe there's nothing going on, and you've repeated that over and over and over again. It's still the people care about you. They love you, and that's an important thing to accept. I learned um, I learned overhearing a conversation um, when someone – who was unemployed was asked by a person, Hey, how's the job search going? I I heard the unemployed person answer, you know what I'm the question I'm going to answer instead. And then he offered up the question he wanted and was prepared to answer. And that seemed very empowering. And, um, you know, and so he said, you know, I'm really, I'm going to tell you how I'm doing and how, you know, named his wife, um, you know, and their kids, how, how we're doing. And so he answered the how are you doing question, even though he was asked, how is the job search going? Because it was the it was the question he was interested and prepared to ask. Um, and so I do think there's some control that an unemployed person can take in a conversation by simply saying, you know what, I'm not going to answer that question, but here's the question I am going to answer. Um, because it it provides a pathway for real conversation um, that and that is really what the person asking is interested in having is a real conversation with you. And, and Carmen, I love that one. And 
The other thing I've learned about people who are unemployed is they're going to tell you everything's fine, even when it's <laughs> not. And sometimes you need to ask that question a couple times. So if you're a friend and they say, yeah, I'm fine, just say, no, how are you really doing? And they'll tell you again, oh, I'm doing fine. And then ask a third time. Then they know you really want to know. And then they're probably going to open up and talk about what's going on. And they need some people like that. They need people to be able to let their hair down and really say what's on their heart and their mind and the struggles, because it is a lonely journey uh, when you're going through it when you're unemployed. Okay, Dale, I know this is actually not on our agenda to talk about, but this is an HR resume question that um, sort of popped into my mind as I was reading an article this morning. Um, uh, When you are talking with people who are putting together or updating their resume, are there times that you encourage them to leave things off of their resume um, because there are, you know, maybe particular political positions that those companies or people that they worked for in the past now, you know, are well known for? I just am super duper curious personally about this, um, what to put and not to put in a resume today in the in the particular political or politicized climate. You know, if we're talking about something that's happened in the last 10 years, your resume really needs to have everything on it, what you did in those time frames. If it was somebody that you worked for 40 years ago, it, it probably could be left off because the employer today isn't interested. When you don't put things on and people later find out, then there's this doubt of what else aren't you telling me? So mm-hmm. it's far more important to just say, yep, yeah, this was my employer. This is what I did. This is where I worked. Um, it may eliminate you from some places because they, they're going to associate that uh, inappropriately with, you know, your own beliefs or whatever. At the same time, if that's what they're going to do, do you really want to work for that company? So I think it's important to be honest and faithful in what you put down on your resume and not hide anything. I appreciate that. Um, I think that's uh, 100% right. Uh, Dale, thank you. Uh, Dale Cryan-Camp is, among other things, the author of How Long, O Lord, How Long, Devotions for the Unemployed and Those Who Love Them. He is also the founder of Thriving Through Transitions. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the copies of the book that we have here in studio, just text the word book to 877-933-2484. Dale, what a blessing. Thanks so much for joining us today. Carmen, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. We'll be right back. Um. All right, it was one year ago today on the 19th of January 2020 that the first COVID-19 case was confirmed in the United States of America. I mean, we now know it wasn't the first case, but it was the first case confirmed in the U.S. one year ago today. I want you to consider what has happened in that one year. Many, many, many things that none of us ever expected to happen Uh, Looking back over the course of a year is an exercise in hindsight, and hindsight is, of course, uh, 2020. Like, we actually can see clearly. Yeah, (laughs) Paul's saying literally. It was literally 2020. Um, Okay, so now let's engage in an exercise of foresight. Let's look ahead. Let's look at the runway ahead. We've looked back. Now let's look ahead. What will we be able to say one year from today? 
in terms of what happened. Let me encourage each of us and all of us to expect always the unexpected. Anticipate miracles, confident that with God, all things are possible. And let me encourage us each and all to walk by faith. One thing I know we're going to be able to say a year from today is that God is God and God is good and we are his. There's going to be a lot of headlines for us to till between now and then. Lots of ways in which we are going to be called to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the events uh, of our days. But this, let us be found faithful in saying, God is God, God is good, and we are his. It was true a year ago. It's true today. It'll be true a year from now. God is the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. Let's be confident in that today as we go forth to demonstrate his kingdom principles to the world. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.